You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm the creative editor at Nori. I'm one of the co-founders too. We are a carbon removal marketplace based in Seattle. Um, we do lots of things together. Siobhan and I here, Siobhan Montoya-Lavender. She works at Thanks a Ton, which refuses to die. Am I even able to say that? <laughs> You like keep getting. You are. Thanks a ton. Yeah. The startup that just keeps on chugging along. Check I us out it. at thanksaton.earth. Love it. Also, we work on the memes together. So if you like the carbon removal memes for climate restorative teens, that's a uh, Shiv uh, and Asa Kamer for the most part. A lot of fun over there, and we're going to have some fun today too because we're talking about a topic I'm really interested in, which is blue carbon. We are joined today by Kevin Wilden, who is the co-founder and co-director of Sustainable Surf. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Hi, Siobhan. Thank you. Hi, Ross. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, we're really curious about Blue Carbon. For our listeners who don't know, Ross, have we done a Blue Carbon show before? Has there been a lot of Blue Carbon on podcasts? If, if it's uh, like littoral seas and mangroves and stuff like that, if we did, it's ancient history, but um, we can basically assume we're starting from scratch here. So for those who don't know, Blue carbon is really defined as carbon that's being stored in coastal and marine ecosystems. And so we're talking about, yes, mangroves and seagrasses and coral. There's a lot going on here. And these are kind of powerhouses in the industry of nature-based carbon solutions. So Kevin, tell us a little bit about what Sea Trees is and why you founded it. Okay, great. So Sea Trees is a program of sustainable surf. Uh, it's a nonprofit that I started in 2011 with my co-founder, Michael Stewart, and um, we're based in California. And you might wonder what a surfing nonprofit has to do with climate change. Well, turns out um, both Michael and I were working in climate change in the 2000s in San Francisco. Um, he was doing carbon offset development in the early, early 2000s. I was doing clean tech um, carbon capture development back then when it was called clean tech. Um, I was working on a company that was developing ocean iron fertilization, which is the form of the carbon. And we realized that what was missing in solving climate change was a good story and really like the heroes in solving climate change. Like there's a, a number of things that are missing in how we talk about and think about solving climate change and story is where it all begins. So we were also surfers trying to figure out why the surfing business wasn't really leading on climate, like on sustainability and climate change. This is when Patagonia was charging ahead on like what a responsible company that manufactures something should be. Right. And a lot of companies have followed that model. I mean, it's they really pioneered a lot of that thinking. And yet surfing was asleep. So we thought, let's do something that we're passionate about. Let's start a nonprofit to help surfing become leaders in solving climate change. And that's really what we believe. So um, let me get let's go to that story in a minute, but let me just tell you quickly what we do so your, your listeners have the context of what we are. So we're a nonprofit. Um, we work in coastal ecosystems through our program called Sea Trees, which is now a global brand. We're currently operating 20 blue carbon restoration projects around the world um, in kelp, mangroves, carbon, coral, seagrass, and watershed restoration. Now, the astute listeners may, may say, hey, wait a minute, you can't really form carbon credits from all those things. And coral is a carbon neutral ecosystem, right? So how can that can make, make carbon credits? So let's think about, like, let's define what um, blue carbon actually is. In my opinion, it's really about uh, enabling what I call the ocean superpower, which is carbon sequestration. Now, if you look at um, some, uh, a bit more about my background, I'm, I'm a geologist. I studied climate change in Antarctica in the 90s. 
and I like to sort of go big picture on geologic stats. And so if you look at the carbon cycle on the planet, like the movement of carbon throughout all ecosystems and all living things, plants, animals, the atmosphere, soil, the ocean, 90% of all that carbon is in the ocean. And only 2% is on land with 8% being in, or in the atmosphere and only 8% being on land. So if there's, if there's too much carbon in the atmosphere and that's only 2% of the total carbon cycle and the ocean is 90% of it, um, doesn't it make sense that if we're going to take CO2 out of the atmosphere that the ocean should be one of the main factors of doing that? And so what we're trying to do with sea trees is speed up the ability for the capacity for people to manage ocean ecosystems as a way to enable that superpower of the ocean, which is carbon sequestration. Okay. Ross, let's now, jump in there. Yeah. I, I was just interested at the very beginning, you had mentioned that you had worked in ocean iron fertilization, which, yeah. um, I mean, everyone, I think, that has been around carbon removal associates that with Russ George and that famous experiment off of uh, Haida Gwaii up yeah. at... Yeah, so Russ George was the other other group doing it. His company is called Planktos. My company was called Climos, and it was led by Dr. Dr. Margaret Leinen, who's you know one of the foremost oceanographers in the U.S. And we had a team of oceanographers working on how to develop it properly with methodologies, working with you know what wasn't like with a SCS Global was doing our methodology for us, and we were ready to go do an experiment in the deep ocean, the Southern Ocean to figure out exactly how much carbon you could sequester through the method and also to measure all the impacts. It's like, what people don't understand about like carbon methodologies is that it's basically a glorified science review document, right? Where you have a bunch of scientists who come together, this is how you measure carbon and then simplify it. So you don't have to be a team of PhDs for every carbon project, right? And, but first you gotta do the science and unless the science is done properly, you can't have a methodology and can't have offsets. Unfortunately, the whole Russ George thing basically killed the momentum that anyone else had on it for doing mm -hmm. it the right way. And that's why ocean fertilization was held back 10 years. Now it's actually moving ahead again quite rapidly. And um, there's new experiments being planned and basically the, the winds have shifted recognizing that we need tools like that if we're going to solve climate change. It's amazing how in this industry that's so burgeoning, although, you know, on the one hand, I feel like when we're talking about ecological systems, we're talking about like ancient practices and like really natural, natural systems. But then when we're trying to augment it or, you know, get the science right and do new experiments, there's just a lot of pressure, you know, I think to, to get it right. And I think like, there's a lot of judgment and there's a lot of scrutiny and like one wrong move can really cause a lot of ripple effects to your point of like one project that does something poorly can end up having ripple effects on another. Um, what brought you to, to sustainable surf specifically, and then from there to sea trees? Right. Okay. So, and back to that point you made on stories, like it's literally all about the story. Like our like work that we do in carbon is about the story of something that's really hard to prove, which is the absence of a colorless, odorless, tasteless gas that we're literally breathing as we speak. And a ton of that, what does that even mean? Right. So all this science is needed to quantify that in a way it can become a financial instrument and put value on it. So it's really challenging. And really, it comes down to the story. How is the story told at every aspect of that value chain? And is it done right or is it done wrong? Because if it's done wrong, then you get some Guardian article written about you with the headline being how you're scamming the world, right? And <laughs> it's not a good thing. So, so, and I want to get more into the story as well. There's a lot more to it. But let's just start with like how you tell stories that are engaging on climate change. So a, a bit about my history. So I was in 
I was an undergrad at UC San Diego studying geochemistry. I was always interested in geology. Learned about how the very first major climate shift on the planet occurred. That was 2 billion years ago during the rise of oxygen on the planet. So most people don't know that oxygen didn't exist on the original Earth atmosphere. And it was the first, the first cyanobacteria, the first photosynthetic yeah. organisms produce oxygen as their toxic waste. And when oxygen became like large, enough oxygen in the atmosphere happened, it killed all those first organisms off because oxygen was toxic to them, right? And so I learned about that. I was like, wow, like the Earth's climate like, really can shift. There's big things happening. And about that time was like the real awareness of what climate change was going to be as, a, as an issue. Like James Hansen wrote his paper in the, you know, the late 80s. And then you could see the IPCC was starting. This is like I was literally in college at that time, right? IPCC was starting to issue their reports and they were looking at what had happened with the Clean Air Act where the first cap and trade with sulfur emissions from coal plants was incredibly successful. And they're like, wow, market mechanisms, this is a way to actually use innovation of, of capitalism, entrepreneurship to solve environmental problems faster and cheaper than anyone thought was possible. And so you could see the wind, I could see the winds of climate change being the, the problem I wanted to work on my whole life. And I actually really have done that. And so I watched the Kyoto Protocol come about and I started working for Mark Trexler in the year 2000. He was like one of the OG carbon offset consultants and developers and learned in the very beginning kind of how offset projects need to work. And I moved into renewable energy for a while and worked in, and saw how effective that world can be in both renewables and energy efficiency. Then I went to Climos and did the carbon, uh, sort of clean tech ocean development or ocean sequestration technology. And then when that died, because the story then was about the Maverick restaurant just dumping iron off the back of a boat with like no scientists and saying, I'm going to solve climate change, right? Um, a lot of hyperbole. <laughs> I, I needed something different. And so I realized that I recently learned how to surf and I realized the power of surfing to tell a story. So let me answer your direct question now why surfing and why surfing nonprofit. The joke that I make is that the best way to make anything look cool is to put a surfer next to anything. <laughs> and if you look on advertising, you're gonna see surfing used in ad ads for cars, computers, cell phones, beer, insurance, everything, right? And it's because of that instant cool factor that is really unmatched for many other sport than surfing. Um, <clears throat> And so you would think that surfers would be really keen on environmental issues. And for the most part, they're just as oblivious as everybody else. I think there's more potential because of the sort of the culture of being in the water and the history of ancient Hawaii being quite um, regenerative as a society and very holistic in the connection between nature and, and sort of their, how they live, their way of life. But what we want to do is use surfing as a way to tell the story in a way that's fun and engaging. Because in climate change discussions, how often do you think they're fun and engaging? Like, <laughs> they're almost well, I, I never. Work, I work at a company that's based on a, a pun, and then I make carbon removal memes with Ross here. So yeah. I think I'm like the 1% of people that actually has pretty fun and engaging climate discussions. But to your point, I think storytelling is the ball game. I mean, we talk about yeah. that all the time at Thanks a Ton. And we talk about that at Nori a lot too. And to your point of this idea of this odorless gas that you don't see it happening. And we, we had a Peter Oliver on undo a while back and he was talking about how it's actually not an intangible good. It is very tangible to those who that are like planting a mangrove or, you know, crushing up a salt rock and spreading on farmland. It's very tang tangible to those doing the work, but it's completely intangible to the end customer. And then the story 
becomes the tangibility of what what they're putting their money into, right? And so I do exactly. think storytelling is just it's the ball game. It's super crucial in this industry. Um, and I I I love that uh, surfing was the was the cool factor that you were like, let's get surfing yeah. and carbon removal. Um, and that's curious. I guess I'd push back a little bit, just being friends. I think we actually were introduced, Kevin, through a mutual surfing friend. Um, I am not a surfer, by the way. I have surfed many times. I am not a surfer. Um, but, you know, he said that he really got into climate stuff because of surfing. And, you know, we do think of lots of, you know, surfing community initiatives. Um, what is it about coastal ecosystems, whether you're surfing or you're snorkeling or you're a fishing, you know, sustainable fisher person, like, what do you think about coastal ecosystems really draws people in? Where's the story there? Sure. Okay. So it's definitely not carbon unless you're the, the 1% nerds <laughs> like us, <laughs> in which case it's huge. And listen, climate change is a major threat to the planet, right? We have to solve it. And there, there's a growing recognition around society that you need to engage the oceans, coastal ecosystems, blue carbon, and people are trying to figure out how to do it. The science is 20 years behind what it is on land. That's why there's so few blue carbon credits available right now. And we're working on that too with kelp and other ecosystems. But what draws people into oceans is just being in the ocean. Like we're primordially, you know, life evolved in the ocean. There's salt water in our veins. And we have receptors in our nose for salt crystals, like salt ions that act like meditation. That's why when people surf, they're, you know, they're, <laughs> there's a reason why they tend to be more mellow and happy. And when you, when the waves are bad, I haven't surfed for two weeks while I'm grouchy and, you know, not much fun to be around. Um, you get used to that stuff. So there's real value in just being connected to the ocean. But I think everybody loves the idea of a healthy ocean. Like almost nobody disagrees that's not a good thing. And then if you dig deeper into it, you recognize how the oceans absorb 90% of the excess heat from climate change already. Right. And we're about to have a super El Nino this year. You know, probably I mean, we don't know how big it is, but my money's on a pretty big one. And it's going to change weather dramatically for an entire year. It's going to be the ocean basically being blamed for it. Yeah, it's just responding to what we've done to it. And so there's there's a there's a recognition that the ocean controls weather on the planet, controls life on the planet, and a healthy ocean makes sense. And then the reason why coastal ocean issues are important is that's where we live. Like, again, we, we live on land. So we tend to think about you know, the ocean that's closest to us. And that also tends to be really highly productive blue carbon ecosystems. So I live in California and that in California, it's primarily kelp forests and seagrass beds, um, especially kelp. And now kelp carbon offsets are kind of the hottest mythical offset in the world, in the market right now. Everybody wants a kelp carbon offset they're willing to pay top dollar, like hundreds of dollars a ton if they can even exist, yet they don't exist because the science isn't ready yet. I'd love to tell you a bit more about what we're trying to do to solve that problem. From my, my perspective of being someone who's lived and loved nature for a long time, I want to enhance natural ecosystems. Basically, the role of humans is to enhance nature's healing mechanisms from climate change. There's a lot of things the earth does to sequester CO2 from even the weathering of rock, right? Yet the timescales in which those things operate naturally are too slow to, to match the rate of emissions that humans are doing, which is roughly a hundred times faster than it's ever happened in geologic history, right? So we have to speed that up, but we have to do it smartly with science. And for me, natural ecosystems are the way to go. So kelp forests, you know, there's a paper just published on kelp forests saying that they provide $500 billion a year globally in ecosystem services and value through fishing and you know, clean water and carbon sequestration. 
and yet they're not being valued on the carbon market or anything else really. And there's the main reason is the science isn't ready yet. Now, a kelp forest is incredibly complex in how it sequesters CO2 compared to any other carbon methodology out there. Um, the, it's basically about photo, like kelp, like giant kelp, which is where I live, uh, is the fastest growing organism on the planet. It grows two feet per day in ideal conditions. And it photosynthesizes more than any other organism on the planet. And even so, even as fast as it grows, and an additional 30% of what it photosynthesizes each day can't even be used by the kelp and is exuded as dissolved organic carbon you know, within that day. So it's an incredibly effective fixer of, of CO2. And yet what happens to that carbon? Like most of the carbon it's taking in is coming from, from the water. And that air-sea gas exchange may happen 100 miles away from the actual kelp forest. And then the export of carbon is not in the carbon, not in the bed below the kelp forest, it's usually rocky reefs, right? So it doesn't sequester carbon there but it's exported in the deep ocean. And the question is how much gets exported and when? Because like where I live, there's big storms. Like we had a huge winter surf this year and all the kelp got ripped up everywhere. And all of that got pushed somewhere else, probably into the deep submarine canyons nearby where I live, right? And quantifying that in a way where you have a repeatable regular methodology, it can be verified each year. It's a pretty complex oceanographic problem. So what we're doing to solve that is we've actually partnered with the Scripps Institution of Oceanography um, to design a three-year study of a global, like a giant kelp forest to measure the carbon fluxes on every aspect of it for basically at least a year, if not two years. And then and that's a combination of biological you know, samples, chemical and dissolved organic uh, carbon sampling physical oceanographic modeling, especially like when there's big wave events to model where the, the particulates flow and essentially do that in a way that we can answer, produce a methodology. And we're also working with Sylvester and Climate Associates who develops blue carbon methodologies for, um, for Vera to help you know, guide that research. So at the end of this research study, we can actually create a methodology for a giant kelp forest carbon offset project. I have a bunch of questions there. So I think, first of all, I'm curious about, obviously MRV, you know, monitoring, reporting, verification, yeah. hugely, hugely important in the industry. Um, obviously natural systems are harder to do that than, or open systems as we call them as opposed to closed systems like a DAC machine. Um, but I also wonder, is this, the, is this the crux of getting funding into these projects? Is it lack of MRV? Because as we're talking about storytelling and as we're talking about people's love and connection to the ocean, do we have, like, is there, what's the pathway? Sometimes I wonder about the funding pathway for coastal restoration, for land-based restoration. Should it all be carbon credits? Should it be philanthropic funds? You're a 501c3, curious why you've made that decision. Um, like, yeah. I just think a lot about the funding structure. Like, are we doing this right? Is this the way we should approach this? That is an excellent question, Swan. That's exactly the right question to ask. And the answer is no, it's not about just carbon. The joke I make is that carbon credits are the tail that wags the dog of solving climate change. You know, the market mechanism, the carbon offset story was only a small piece of the overall climate change solution story. Yet it overshadows everything right now for a number of reasons, mainly because people can invest in it and make money on it. Like that's the whole point of a, car of a carbon market, a market mechanism is that we, our economy values the ecology and puts financial value in what's essentially a charitable thing, which is just 
supporting and restoring ecosystems, right? Um, and so the reason we're a nonprofit is because we actually want to move work outside the carbon markets. These carbon markets are very limiting, right? Um, there's always certain methodologies available. Those methodologies require projects of certain sizes to even be profitable to invest in and develop. And innovation is very slow and hard to, really hard to reward. And there's certain cases where it works great, but there's many cases where it doesn't. And as a nonprofit, we're actually not limited by that. We're not forced to make money for our investors. We're specifically not allowed to make a profit, right? Um, now our company is growing and we're able to you know, invest some of our donations into new projects and innovate, which is great. But um, at the end of the day, this is all charitable that we're doing. Any kind of offset is meant to be retired. That means that the money that was spent ultimately is charitable. So there's a lot of advantages of being a nonprofit. And the way that we work is finding other nonprofits around the world who are, have an ecosystem restoration project in mind that they want to run. They have some things ready to go, but they need other help like finance, finance financial support or data collection science support or marketing and storytelling support. And we basically look for groups around the world that need our help to get launched. And then our funding is coming from corporate donors who want a good story for their social impact giving. Some of our donors are buying carbon credits that we source from a few projects that we think are high quality that are blue carbon related. But, um, but most of them are just donating to plant what we call sea trees. And so a sea tree is a colloquial term that we use for like a mangrove tree planted like a seedling. Um, it could be a square foot of kelp forest restored, that's a kelp sea tree, or a coral fragment put on a reef, that's what we call a coral sea tree and so on, right? Um, and we've planted so far 3 million sea trees in the last three years since we launched sea trees. And we have 20 projects around the world that we're doing. So it's definitely growing and majority of our revenue is purely charitable for ecosystem restoration, right? Now, having said that, I just make one more point, which is, the carbon finance part is still the largest pot, largest chunk out there. And we're always trying to find ways to connect that with the projects that we're doing. That's why we're working on this uh, very ambitious three-year science project to, to get kelp into the carbon market what I, the right way, right? About kelp forests and valuing all the benefits of the forest, not just the carbon, but the fisheries, the tourism, the revenue, the cultural heritage of kelp forests, which is a, an amazing story and things like that, so. Do you feel compelled by economic circumstance to plug what you're doing into a carbon market context that you otherwise would prefer not to be there? No, not at all. I mean, I think that carbon markets are really, really important. Um, and I, I want to see them thrive and grow. And, rec and as someone who's been in the carbon market since the early 2000s, like, I guess that's almost 25 years, right? Um, as long as anyone is pretty close. Yeah. Pretty much. And it's like, what does a carbon market do? There's so many things that it does that could be valuable. Like, let's just talk about the biggest picture of what I think it does, which is if you look at the, the word economy and the word ecology, they come from the same Greek root word called oikos or ecos, oh, which right. means home, right? Exactly. And they're literally the home in terms of family, the home in terms of the environment, the home in terms of money. That's all, that's all that encompassed in that meaning of that one Greek word. And yet in our current Western economy, the environment's an externality. It's not valued in the way it needs to be. And we need to bring that back. And you know, ancient peoples like in ancient Hawaii and elsewhere, they were literally the same thing. Like in, in Hawaiian, in ancient Hawaiian language, 
the word for water is Y, W-A-I. And the word for wealth is Y-Y. It's literally wealth is water, <laughs> right? That, that philosophy needs to be forefront in our Western philosophy. And the carbon markets is one way that's really driving that forward, right? Charitable giving is another way that's also doing that. And that's been like that for a while. But those need to match and they need to meet. And you know, what we're doing at C-Trees, we're actually creating that intersection between charitable giving and sort of the financial value that can be driven. And we're doing it as a nonprofit, working with other nonprofits and scientists. And I think it's a really, it's a really cool place to work. I love what I do and our team is stoked to work on the projects that we're doing. And frankly, we're getting more and more recognition for it at the same time. Does that mean that uh, donations to your type of carbon removal, your blue carbon projects are tax deductible? They are indeed. That's, yep, 100%. I always think that's really exciting when I hear stuff like that too. And yeah. I'm, I'm sort of surprised more companies haven't taken advantage of that because it's a great selling point to, to customers. We get asked that sometimes too, but we're a private company and we, we are not tax deductible. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And then also the, um, the stories that we tell. So one of the things we're really focused on is storytelling from our projects. So when, when companies come to us and, and donate, like we're giving them a, a full media package right back. So they don't have to do the hard work of telling how to talk about the story the right way. And as you know, talking about climate change solutions in 2023 is perilous. <laughs> like Delta Airlines being sued and others for trying to do the right thing, for doing the net zero approach that everyone agreed was the right thing to solve climate change at the rate it needs to be solved, given that we're in a state of planetary emergency. And yet all it takes is a little bit of skepticism about what an offset is and whether they're quality or not. And suddenly now the floodgates have opened for people claiming, you know, disingenuous behavior when the reality is if you look at the from the u.s like 80 percent of the emissions from the u.s are controlled by households and people take no responsibility for their own footprint right? and so i feel like there's a from households wow i, I would yeah because the thing is as soon as you, like, people tend to think oh it's the corporations and government like they're the ones that aren't taking responsibility for climate change right but the moment you buy something from Amazon or wherever, like you own that footprint, not Amazon, because you're the end user. And so if you look at sort of all the energy flows and roughly half of that comes from uh, stuff that you buy where carbon's emitted on your behalf somewhere else in the world, but ultimately because you bought it, you own it. And you know, cool climate, uh, not sorry, yeah, um, cool climate in Berkeley, they're doing a lot of that research on sort of household-based emissions in the US. And it's a good place to start. And frankly, people need to take more responsibility on their own carbon footprint and stop pointing fingers at those trying to do the right thing. And then also recognize that you know, offsets, like I mentioned before, the methodologies in which offsets are based on is based on like basically scientific research. It's a living scientific review paper, basically. Science is always being improved. So, so the attacks that are happening now on the carbon markets and various companies that are do, you know, using them will improve how we do things in the future because we still need the solution going forward. It's not going to go away. Right? It only needs to scale up. Are you being specific to Delta in thinking that they were acting with the best of intentions? Or are you just saying that anyone in the past who has made climate claims, they may have failed at them and they turned out to be not as rigorous as they may have hoped, but were acting in good faith? I think it's, it's somewhat intuitive that companies maybe are trying to do as little as possible, but still get the marketing cover from this behavior. Yeah. Or is that too cynical of you in your in your opinion? Exactly the right view. I mean, and I'm not being cynical. I'm pointing out that this is like, like science is very messy and sort of 
brutal in how it happens. Like, you know, a scientific discussion with various scientists and they're all attacking each other and each other's ideas, trying to find which one's the right one. And then they move forward with that until the next piece of science comes along and says, no, it should be this way and not that, right? And it's always improving, but it's zeroing in on something that's usually a, a pretty solid result. And so the attacks that are happening on Delta and there's also a number of things happening in Europe that are quite similar right now. All those things will improve how messaging and stuff works because that also needs to improve. Again, it comes down to the story of how we're doing it. And yeah, there may be companies that really are sort of being disingenuous and hopefully they get caught. But the, but the companies that we work with are all really passionate about it. And we know they're not being disingenuous at all. And they want to be able to talk about what they're doing because it is ultimately an expense. It's not like they're making money on it unless it builds their brand value. And that's a normal thing like that. I think that's a good thing. What kind of claims are they making with what you're selling them? Are they like, are you, are they, is it too early for really rigorous MRV? And so they're a little bit more open-ended. There's less of a carbon accounting framework. Well, we're very careful that if someone is just planting sea trees and, you know, planting mango trees or restoring kelp forests um, or doing coral reefs, which is a carbon neutral ecosystem, but they're not claiming a carbon benefit. Like they're, it's sort of a qualitative benefit for the ocean and for biodiversity and, you know, all the other values that matter, not just carbon. Now, now there, we do have a program called Ocean Positive, which, is, which allows companies who have done their footprint and want to wipe out their footprint with offsets. Um, and notice I don't use the word offset as a verb because I think that's the, you have must pay, you've, you've sinned and now you must pay for your sins kind of story. We make it fine by saying, wipe out your footprint. It's like wiping out on a, on a big wave, right? And, and then, and basically take responsibility for your climate impact. So again, it's, it's really about the language that we choose sets the story that we're conveying. And so the companies who have done their footprint, done that work, want to do something about it and buy the best quality offsets, you know, they're sourcing them from us. Um, the main project that we choose is Southern Cardamom Rainforest Red Plus project in, in Cambodia, which is, I consider one of the best Red Plus projects in the world. Um, it also has mangroves and coral reefs at its base. And it's in the news right now for some negative press again, attacks are going to make this project stronger just like everything else does i think it's still a highly high quality project and and then what we do is we also in addition to buying the offsets which gets them to essentially the net zero status we then plant additional mangrove trees and restore kelp forests on their behalf and that takes out additional co2 in a qualitative sense not as an offset and um, that basically takes out more co2 than they emit and we call that ocean positive and then they get an ocean positive certification mark that we have and from there, it's like, how do you tell the story of being ocean positive? And what are all the benefits? And they get the, the videos, the media, the stories, we help them with their language and to try and make sure that they're not going to have any issues with you know, someone saying, oh, that's disingenuous. Because at the end of the day, that's the solution everybody needs. Right. I asked you that question about carbon markets only because there has been such a rush to frame things primarily in terms of the carbon benefit, even in cases where you're like, hey, there's a whole other. Yeah of stories you could be telling instead of the carbon benefit story, but because that's what many customers have been trained to think of as the main benefit, it almost feels like suppliers are unnaturally like sort of pushed into this framework that is may not may not be appropriate for every type of credit that comes around. Absolutely, right? And if, and again, if like your story is about climate change and and basically buying offsets or offsetting, like you open yourself up for that negative story frame. And if you focus on like the benefits to oceans and supporting biodiversity and, you know, people that need, you know, that subsist on the ocean, cultural heritage, as well as the carbon, 
like those are other stories that people can't attack. And the carbon is basically a chair on top of the Sunday. You're taking responsibility for that too. It's the story framing is so important and climate change movement has gotten it so wrong for so long. That's why we're in the mess that we're in now, right? First of all, I like you say like attacks make a project stronger. Um, you know, I like that you're not saying just don't attack us, but like, hey, attacks make a project stronger. I also, I grapple with the whole idea of offsetting a lot. Um, and so it's interesting that you guys don't, you choose to use wipeout or other, other terminology because I think offsetting is tricky. And, you know, Nori just came out with a white paper um, about a blended ton because they've been grappling a lot too with like this concept of like how to appropriately ap approach offsetting and how to do the proper carbon accounting and, you know, bringing in temporal timescales and then, you know, how long carbon lasts in different cycles. It's a really tricky thing to get right. And part of me just wants to like throw offsetting out the window. <laughs> Does anybody else feel that like, could we just, is there, is there a better way to think about this and fund these things besides focusing on offsetting? But the reality is to your point, Kevin, is, you know, offsetting is a major thing to Ross's point. Companies have likely been kind of trained to think about carbon footprints and, you know, offsetting their emissions, whether present or historic. And I just wonder if we're all just digging ourselves into this voluntary carbon market hole and is there a better strategy? And I wonder like how you approach this thinking of A, being a nonprofit, B, you know, doing like kind of things that are funded philanthropically and then C, caring about and engaging in the carbon market. It seems like you're kind of tackling it from a lot of different angles here. Yeah, indeed. Thank you. And uh, I'm stoked to talk to you guys because you have been working in the blockchain world for a while. And I think blockchain has a real role to play in this. How do we improve the idea of offsets? And really it's like from, there's basically two halves to it. One is how do you track the impact? Like this world that we're in is all about transparency of impact and proof of impact, MRV, you know, whatever term you want to use. It's really about proving that the money I'm spending has the impact that I, that I want it to. And what does blockchain do? It's a transparent ledger that, once it's written, can't be changed, right? You can track it all. And that's exactly what you should be using to track all the impacts from any kind of carbon project and not just carbon, but biodiversity credits, um, you know, sustainable development benefits, you know, everything else that we can measure either quantitative, quantitatively or qualitatively, right? And it also needs to track stories. <laughs> so we're trying to figure out at C-Trees is how can we actually put our impact on a blockchain that we can track the, the project impact, you know, whether we're using established MRV protocols or ones that we created ourselves. And then two, how do we use that, that power of blockchain to communicate the impact to the donors in a way that's more tangible? Because at the end of the day, the only thing that's really tangible to a donor is the story, right? And remember what I said about every carbon offset sale being tan like charitable and fundamentally in nature, right? So the only thing that matters to the in buyer, the person that's giving the money to support this work is the story, that's all they get. Um, how can we use the power of blockchain to make that story more tangible? And I think NFTs are a really interesting solution because as, as amorphous and hard to define as an NFT is, it's easier to define that than it is a ton of carbon. <laughs> and you, know, you can put an NFT in your wallet and you can say, here's my phone, this is my wallet, I own this NFT, right? So can you use that as a way to better tell the stories of the impact that you made that's already written in a blockchain that already exists? Like, I think there's a lot of potential there. And I think that, you know, the, the 
groups that are working on blockchain, like like you guys at Regen Network and others, like I think you're doing it the right way about understanding what a methodology is and how how you have to have this multiple levels of transparency on how a carbon benefit is produced and then tracked and verified. Um, this could really speed up solutions. And then as long as we can also be flexible and fast enough to, you know, match the rate of climate change, which is only accelerating due to tipping points, right? It can't be the super slow process. And I think that's, you know, and, and then, frankly, the market mechanism of offsets allows companies like Nori to exist, right? Because there is a there is an investment case. There's a way to make money by doing this. And that allows these innovative ideas to, to exist that wouldn't exist in just charitable funding alone, right? That's why I believe offsets in this carbon, the market mechanism of solving climate change is absolutely essential. And it needs to improve and speed up. And, you know, like, rec like you know, Vera just changed their CEO. And, I, you know, yeah. many people say, well, he got, you know, due to poor performance, whatever. I think the performance was awesome. I remember when VCS was first created in the early 2000s and voluntary carbon market was like, a new idea really. And it was a huge improvement over what it was before at the time, which was you literally had to develop your own project to get offsets. And, and they've taken it a long way and it's been a hard road. I mean, it's really only the last couple of years that the, they've really been a lot of money in carbon, you know, with the net yeah. zero frame changing everything. Kevin, you're making me want to bring on more people that are kind of have a history in carbon markets because I don't think I've talked to someone like you where you're looking at it from a very different lens, I think, in terms of you've been part of it for a long time. And so That's for you to come out and say like, yeah, and be like, no, Vera's doing a great job and here's why is so interesting to me. Um, I think I often land on the cynical side where I think, you know, 95% of these credits in this market aren't doing anything. What are we really, what are we really doing here? Let's focus on the, these really high quality credits. How do we get to them? And then how do we avoid the historic problems we've had where people have sold credits that were supposedly high quality and turned out, you know, to get burned up in a wildfire and, and they still claim them or what have you, these, these stories we've been told about like how these credit projects can go really wrong. Um, and I think it's really refreshing for me as a cynic to like, hear you talking about this and bringing kind of a perspective, which you're, you, you bring a good point. Like you've been in this for a long time and like, look where we are now versus where we started, I think is a good way to, way to approach this. Yeah. Well, if, if you're a scientist, I call you a professional cynic on carbon. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what a scientist is actually a professional cynic <laughs> where, where you have to be skeptical and really attack things, but understand that there's a process that you're following, right. To improve and create a result that's beneficial, right? And so carbon markets have been going through this cycle of attacks for 20 years and they've gotten better every time. I think there's, there has to be a much faster evolution in how they work now, primarily yeah. because the, the threat of climate change is almost you know, unmatched. Like I remember being in grad school in the nineties, reading about like the slowing ocean circulation, the thermohaline circulation in the Atlantic, the Gulf Stream, that's slowing down due to the melting freshwater from the Arctic and Greenland, right? And it's like, God, I couldn't imagine like 25 years in the future. Back then I was only you know, 25 years, 20 years old. So <laughs> I was like, we'll have solved it by then, right? That's essentially what I was assuming. We'll definitely figure this out. And we haven't gotten even close and it's getting worse every year because you know, the, the tipping points we've already crossed in like the melting permafrost, the burning rainforest, you know, slowing ocean circulation. Like if we could snap our fingers and somehow stop all CO2 emissions by humans forever from all time going forward, like today, 
we're still already locked into runaway climate change. We've already crossed the tipping points. Now it's not too, too late to uncross the tipping points, but we can definitely do it if we have the right approach. And to me, the thing that's missing the most is this story of how humans connect to nature as it being part of ourselves and we're stewards of it in a way to enhance it and enhance specifically the healing mechanisms that nature has from you know, prior CO2 emissions that have changed climate. So you know, that's, that's what needs to be brought into the markets is that story, if we're gonna really involve it. You've offered a nice alternative story to Nori's origin story, which like any startup, you have to believe that to some degree the incumbents are wrong or you would not bother to start a company. You would just join an existing one. Like that just makes intuitive sense, right? Yeah. So like for us, the foil has always been the registries and the early carbon market incumbents. And as time has gone on, I've seen posts from people who work at the, the sort of like main players. I've actually had like a lot of respect for them. And I feel like when I was younger, I had this folly of youth, like, uh, yeah. like, throw the Pharisees out of the temple, like we're starting over. And now that I'm a little bit older and I'm Nori has run into problems too, where even acting in good faith, you're like, these problems are enormous and very challenging. And you, I can only imagine what it's like to be at a company much bigger and harder to change than even this one. So I have a lot more empathy than when I started for these people. I feel like even acting in good faith, these problems are so <laughs> you not Yes, it's great. Okay, yeah. Right? yeah, I think your story's better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard to quantify carbon, right? It's the least tangible thing in the world. This is the joke I make, right? But the ton of colorless, odorless taste glass, not a ton of it, the absence of a ton of it. What does that even mean? <laughs> so all these mechanisms of like additionality, baseline, leakage, permanence, like all these terms of art in carbon markets were developed to solve that problem by really smart people over decades of hard thinking and work and experience. And that's the key thing. Like it's about experience. It's about not just sitting in a you know in your in your you know in a room and saying this is how we're going to solve it and just figure it out on one day. It's like it, you make your best guess. You get out, you run the projects. Some work, some don't. Some are scams, some are awesome, um, and that will shake out in the market. The market will figure out presumably what's the good stuff and what's the bad stuff. And part of that market is the press and the media, you know, scrutiny and impact. And given how high the stakes are now with climate change, that that scrutiny is even greater. Yet we have to keep trying and keep improving. And I, I do think that the story element is missing because an offset is such an intangible thing that has no in, inherently interesting story unless somehow you include the story in the offset and that's not being done. And so I, I well, do Kevin, think that's where, yeah. Yeah, Kevin, as we kind of close out here, I would love for you to kind of tell us a story about one of your favorite projects or something that you want to highlight that you want people to understand that you guys are working on um, at Sea Trees. What's what's the story you want to tell us to our audience? Okay, great. Um, I'm going to do a two for one. <laughs> so, so one of them is kelp. So I live in California. Most people who aren't Californians probably don't know that California has lost 90% of its kelp forests in the last 10 years due to climate change. And that's primarily Northern California, which is bull kelp. And I live in SoCal, where it's primarily giant kelp, which has also had a pretty dramatic loss, though not quite as great. And so the question is, how do we restore kelp? And so there's some pretty pioneering um, work being done here in, in Los Angeles by our partner at the Bay Foundation to figure out how to restore kelp forests by smashing the sea urchins. Basically, a kelp forest, um, in many cases, gets replaced by a sea urchin barren, where essentially the urchins eat all the kelp and that floats away. And the urchins um, go into a zombie-like state where they can live for 50 years with no food, and, and the kelp will never reestablish. 
So the way they solve it is to send urchin fishermen, you know, commercial divers underwater with rock hammers and smash all the urchins. Um, and then because kelp can grow two feet per day within six months, you've got a fully grown kelp forest. And you know, within a few years, it's fully restored in biodiversity. And so that, so these guys have figured out how to do this and no one had really noticed them. Um, they were just sort of toiling away underwater and sea trees came along and they had, their last guy had just run out. So we'd be able to step in and keep them going to restore the kelp forest off the Palos Verdes Peninsula, which is in Los Angeles. And they'll be finished you know, restoring the, the kelp forest in the next year. And that story has now informed kelp forest restoration around the world. Um, in parallel, there's subforests that, that aren't lost due to, due to urchins at all. Um, so we're working with Scripps scientists right now to study how to bring back the kelp forest of La Jolla, which is used to have an amazing kelp forest and is a tourist destination for kayaking and swimming and diving and whatnot. And it hasn't had kelp since the last marine heat wave in 2015. And it's not due to urchin barrens, it's something else. So we actually just got a tour of a lab that um, is doing all the research about growing kelp, growing more thermally tolerant kelp, um, figuring out how to understand the microscopic life state, life cycle of kelp to better enable restoration to occur. And that's going to restore kelp forests that hopefully by the time that research is done, we're also able to then bring kelp into the carbon markets to fund you know, continued conservation and restoration of kelp forests. The idea that we call blue plus, similar to red plus, but it's about maintaining a healthy kelp forest. That's story one. Story two is coral. So I haven't had said this yet, but the biggest irony of the carbon markets is that the ecosystem that is the most biodiverse on the planet and the most threatened by climate change can never be funded by carbon markets because it's essentially carbon neutral, right? Coral reefs. There is the coral reef restoration technology and, and process is in its infancy compared to other systems that can sequester carbon because there's no money in it at all. Like, there's no way to make money restoring coral reefs at all. So there's been very little research and investment in it. And I want to change that. I think it's time to make a coral ecosystem marketplace. And so again, we're working with sort of the leading coral researchers in the world at Scripps Institutional Oceanography to figure out a coral restoration MRV process that will then enable donors to get a much more tangible impact from their coral restoration you know, donations and essentially create a thriving marketplace where various methodologies and technologies on coral restoration can exist and be rewarded. You know, much like the biodiversity credits that are being created now with the UN, like it's basically similar to that. We're going to tie what we're doing into that for sure. But there's an opportunity now with coral to actually do this because the, uh, the MRV with coral is extraordinary. So Ross, you were talking earlier about how challenging MRV is with carbon. With coral, there's an opportunity to make it incredibly fast and cheap and, and easy and high quality. And here's how it works. So, so basically the way coral monitoring is done today, the best way to do it is something called photogrammetry, where someone swims over a reef with a, a high resolution camera, a 2D camera, not 3D, but 2D camera, and swims and getting basically takes successive pictures that overlap at least 80%. So each picture you take, like if you're swimming, take a picture every second, and then all those overlapping pictures can be reconstructed by a computer to be a full, full 3D model of the reef. And what Scripps has done is they've got technology to actually understand exactly what coral is, like which species are living and which ones are dying and so on in that 3D model. And so you can send someone out with a GoPro camera, which you actually work with GoPro pretty closely to figure out a way to use GoPros to make it much quicker and easier to swim a reef. So anyone who's restoring coral reef 
can swim with a GoPro camera and capture images like once every every year or every six months, right? Those images get sent to scripts to process into 3D modeling, which then is the MRV that shows whether the leaf, the reef restoration is living or dying, if it's working or not. And you actually do real science because the science of coral restoration is also in its infancy. So even just even if the project fails, if you can understand why it failed, that's actually a, a really good result. And the hope is that we can actually create a, a blockchain sort of base marketplace to do that. We haven't decided which blockchain we're going to do yet. We're still in the early stage. There's a number of different partner players in that space. I'm sure you know most you know who I'm talking about, who have ways to create unique methodologies that could be used um, to quantify not just carbon but also biodiversity benefits. And I mean, to me, like if you can, if we can create this and allow any enterprising entrepreneur, um, nonprofit group, anyone in the world to say, I'm going to run a restoration project for coral. That's how we get people around the world to start maintaining and protecting their coral reefs. Because at the end of the day, like what we need is a way to put ecosystems on life support while we reverse climate change, right? Until we figure that out, everything's under threat, but we can keep things alive until that gets done. And I'm, I'm an optimist. I hope that we can do it. I think we can do it. Like I'm, I'm not going to take no for an answer as long as I live in it. So. All right, Kevin, where can we, where can people find you? First of all, you have a beautiful website for sea trees and yeah. this seems like it's the perfect podcast for you because on the front page you have the ocean has the power to reverse climate change. Here yeah. we are on the reversing climate change podcast. So alignment, Indeed. where can people find you? So yes, we're at seatrees.org. So it's c-trees.org is our, our program. And then sustainablesurf.org is our main nonprofit website where we do stuff about sustainable surfboards and other things that are surfing specific, but sea trees is really the main thing that we do these days. So. You have to end, but I was going to ask like, why isn't there a project at Nazare? Like that's, that's the obvious thing that needs to happen. Actually, we are working with a kelp restoration company in Portugal. There you go. <laughs> and, and what they're doing is green gravel where they basically put little kelp spores on rocks and drop them off the edge of a boat. But those only work where there's not high wave energy. So Nazare is the opposite of where that would work. But elsewhere in Portugal, it does work. <laughs> Amazing. Well, uh, thanks yeah. both for being here. Very interesting show. We clearly need to do more blue carbon content. Just stay in touch, Kevin, as your, your projects develop. So thanks so much for being here. It was my pleasure, Rosh and Savan. Um, I've been wanting to be on your podcast for a while. I've been following it for a while. So it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.